0: Well, I invite you to take your Bible. Turn with me uh, to Genesis chapter 32. There are Bibles in the room. I don't know what page it's on. (laughs) Pretty close to the beginning, though, so it shouldn't be too hard. Genesis chapter 32. The whole chapter is our text for this morning. Let's... um, Give her full attention to the word of God being read. encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when, and when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might, may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed and divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes into to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all of the deeds of steadfast love and, faithful, and all the faithfulness you have shown to your servant Forth only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau my brother meets you and asks you, to whom do do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Peniel saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is God's word, and I'm grateful, I trust you are grateful that we have it in front of us. But we need help. And so I encourage you to pray with me as we ask for the Lord's help during this time. Let's pray. Father, we prayed in song earlier that you would speak as we come to you. Speak through your holy word. We're asking, Father, that you would that you would teach us what we do not know That you would give us what we do not have. And Father, that you would make us what we are not yet, but what you want us to be all through your word. Father, give us the attitude of mind and heart. Give us expectancy that you will indeed speak in spite of the fact that the mere man is standing up here. Father, speak to us and plant in our hearts that which will ultimately feed our souls. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as I was thinking about this passage of Scripture, I was thinking about the things that God has done in my life to make me the person that I am. And I I wonder if you ever think about those things. What has God done in your life to make you the man or or woman that you are today? I think back to particular significant events that were uh, uh, very teachable moments for me. A trusted friend in high school rebuked me. And I remember the conversation so clearly. He rebuked me for my self-righteousness. That message stuck. Told me how I repelled others because of that attitude. Think back, of course, the death of my father as a young man. Maybe another one was a a profound moment of clarity about God's grace when I was driving in my car. I can still picture where I was on the highway. How I was mentored uh, by a dear friend who was also a pastor. Or or just the realization of the power of, of God's word to accomplish the things that God wants to do. And a whole host of other lessons, uh, many of them learned through through painful conflict. Uh, I'm still a work in progress, but, but those, those moments they still stand out to me. Well, when we look at Jacob, I, I've been asking the question, even as I asked it myself, well, what, what did God do to make him the namesake of a nation? What did God do in Jacob's life to make him Israel? Now, just a little bit of a review where we are from, uh, so that we can see where we are. Uh, earlier in Genesis, the Lord called Abraham. The Lord told him, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, Abraham had several sons, but that promise was only to be realized through Isaac. In Genesis 21:12, 12, the Lord told Abraham, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. Your offspring shall be named. Now, of course, Isaac had two sons, but it would be through Jacob that that promise was to be realized. And here we are in the text. This promise to Abraham is now being fulfilled. And again, I want to ask the question from the text. I want to understand what did God do in Jacob's life to make him the man that would be the namesake of the people that God would call and set apart unto himself. Now, if you recall the story of how Jacob and Esau were born, before they were born, it was revealed by the Lord, the older will serve the younger. And so when the second of Isaac's sons was born, he came out gripping the heel of his brother Esau. And so he was given the name Jacob, which literally means heel catcher or, or one who grabs the heel, or supplanter, And that's really what what it's meant to convey, the idea of tripping someone up and and taking their place. Well, the narrative of Genesis, as we've discovered, uh, we see that Jacob has certainly lived up to his name. He took advantage of his brother Esau, uh, had him trade effectively his his birthright for a pot of stew. Now, uh, Esau, of course, was not guiltless in this. He despised it, the scripture says. He despised his birthright. But later, through deception on Jacob's part, Jacob tricked his father Isaac into into believing that he was indeed Esau so that he would gain his father's blessing. He effectively stole the blessing from his father. And where we are in the text, this was 20 years ago. So where we are now, these things happened 20 years earlier. And the last time that, that Jacob saw Esau, is when Esau had effectively pledged to kill him because of his deceit. Now, there's a reason that Jacob left, of course, to protect his life. His father, Isaac, had sent him off to Haran to find a wife there. He did. He got two and two servants, maid servants, who also became wives. Now, Jacob is coming back to Canaan with his wives and his children, but he has not forgotten What he did to his brother. And more importantly, the Lord is not finished with Jacob either. He has has been known as a supplanter and he has fully lived up to that name. But now Jacob will be given the new name, Israel. One who perseveres, one who strives. Perseveres is another way of seeing that. So here in J- uh, Genesis 32, we've really got a turning point in Jacob's life. And we can see, and I'll, and I'll trust that you follow me through this, we see in our text three things that God did, not only to t- change Jacob's name, but to change his character. They're identified here by, by three headings, which I've chosen. Repentance, trust, and weakness. Perseverance requires repentance. Perseverance requires trust. And perseverance involves weakness. And that's my outline for today. First of all, repentance. Uh, Eight-year-old Virginia O'Hanlon wrote, to the New York Sun to ask a question that was on her mind, that question having to do with popular Christmas myths, which, of course, crosses the mind of every young child as they grow. And despite the emphatic, yes, Virginia, and you know the story, that that emphatic response from the newspaper's editor, Francis uh, Farsalus Church, at some point in time, I'm sure beyond that answer that she received, she came to understand that love and generosity and devotion do not depend on believing in a red-suited elf. I'm confident that, that through life experience and maturity, she changed her mind about the question. When you change your mind about something, it's because you thought one way and now you have a different understanding. A true change of mind, if it's a genuine, results in a change of behavior. I think you'd agree. And when we think about the word repent, repent is effectively a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. Now often when we see that word repent in the Bible, it has to do with sin and changing one's mind about the direction of life. So from rebellion against God to submission towards God, from unbelief towards faith. Now, I understand that word, uh, repentance, isn't in our text, but I do see it very much on display in Jacob. And I'll show you where I see that. So as as Jacob left the the hill country of Gilead, verse 1 tells us that the angels of God met him. Now, if you notice from the text, he has a divine encounter at the beginning of what we read and, and then again at the end. The angels of God met him. And we're not told anything about that encounter except simply that, that Jacob said this is God's camp and whereupon he named the place Mahanaim, meaning two camps. Again, why that's the case, some commentators suggest that, that it has to do with the landscape there. I don't know. I don't know that it's overly significant, But we're not told of the content or the nature of of what he experienced. He just says, or the text just says, the angels of God met him. Now this is the second time that he has had an encounter with the divine. The last time was was 20 years prior. It's when he was headed to Haran to find a wife. He met there, he, in a dream, um, The Lord affirmed to him the promise to to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and that additionally he would uh, return to Canaan, and he called that place Bethel, house of the Lord. So here we are, 20 years later, he has another divine encounter. And like I said, we don't know the content of what what he experienced. But Jacob is about to cross into Canaan, and, and he is reminded of how he left. And so from what happens next, I, I take it that, that the angels of God prepared Jacob for this encounter that he would have with his brother Esau. Again, no commentary, and I, and I realize it's some speculation on my part, but this is what immediately happens next. So Jacob sends messengers to Esau, that's verse 3, and, and he wants to be referred to his brother As Jacob your servant and and we can see in this that there's this expression of humility towards Esau he also wants Esau to know that he is he's been sojourning with Laban in Haran he wants Esau to know that he has acquired much wealth oxen uh, donkeys flocks servants and again I take it here my speculation but I take it here he is trying to assure Esau that his wealth did not come from their father Isaac he has been enriched with Laban. Remember what he stole from his brother. He stole the birthright. And now he's coming back, a wealthy man. And he's assuring Esau, I got all this stuff with Laban. Again, that's my speculation, but I think it's germane to, to how he interacts here. And, and what Jacob seeks from his brother is to find favor. To find favor. And I take it that what he wants is Forgiveness. Jacob wants restored fellowship. Now, now what Jacob hears back from his servants, the report that he gets back about Esau alarms him. And I think it would alarm anyone. He gets no particular response of his request to find favor. He just finds out Esau, verse 6, is coming to meet him. But not alone. He's coming with 400 men. Someone seeking restitution or agreeing to restitution, you would think why do we need 400 men? And so he is seriously alarmed. It seems like a small army that is, that is ready to attack. And, and Jacob does what is in his mind practical. He, he divides his people and his flocks effectively into two camps. In the event that Esau does attack, at least half will be spared. Now I've, I've, I've titled this section Repentance. And so here's Where I see Jacob's repentance. He prays. This is verse 9 and 10. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. O Lord who said to me return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. Verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all of the deeds of steadfast love. And all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For. With only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I've become two camps. Now I'm reading between the lines, admittedly, I am not worthy. He is recognizing that it isn't the quality of his character that has led to what the Lord has entrusted to him and given to him. I crossed this river with just my staff, I had nothing, and now I am two camps. Again, Reading between the lines somewhat, but to say to the Lord, I am not worthy. I believe it it reveals a repentant heart. Note his prayer. He initially appeals to God's promise. God of my father, you said to me, return to your country. He's he's stating what the Lord had already told him. And then he recognizes in response to that, that he is not Worthy, and he understands and acknowledges that God has acted with steadfast love and faithfulness. Again, everything that he has experienced to this point, including all of the hardship, he recognizes that right through it, he is not worthy and God has been good. He is not worthy and God has been good. That sounds to me like an attitude of repentance. We haven't seen this from Jacob to this point. If you read through the text, we haven't seen this kind of attitude in him. In the past, he certainly acknowledged God's blessing, but apart from admitting his own unworthiness, he might have been, we, in reading it, we might have been left with the thought that Jacob believed that he had deserved it. He knew, he knew what his mother likely told him, his father likely told him, the older will serve the younger. And I don't doubt that he was very well aware of it, that he thought it was his right given that prophetic word about him, to go ahead and seize it on his own, even if it meant by deception. So here we are 20 years later, and his scheming has caught up with him. He's about to face his brother, and this is a very different tone for Jacob. Here in this story, we see that the schemer is learning to persevere, and God has used in Jacob's life, both life circumstances, but In addition to that, direct revelation to bring him to the place of repentance. God has used this circumstance in his life to change his mind about his own motives and actions. And God has Jacob exactly where he wants him to be desperate and humbled. So here's where we get to the application. There is no possible way to embrace the promises of God apart from genuine repentance before God. I think it's true. Repentance is often provoked by desperation. And it doesn't have to be a life crisis, somebody threatening to kill you, but simply a profound understanding that your own sin has separated you from God. As the prophet Isaiah says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. When you come to fully understand the weight of your sin, how sin has has coursed its way through your veins, spiritually speaking how there isn't a part of your life that is not touched somehow, way by sin. And even if you present a, a, a facade to the world of being put together, you know the evil thoughts that pass through your mind, some of which you delay on and cherish for a moment, things that are loathsome to God. And friends, if you want to claim the promises of God, there's no way you can unless you fully understand your depravity and have a divinely given desire to turn away from it. And that requires humility, doesn't it? God holds out the offer of eternal life in Christ but you will not receive it. You cannot receive it unless you first acknowledge your unworthiness before the Lord. You cannot. This is something that I think sets apart the Christian faith from many other religions in the world. Many other religions, people in the faith quotes, can look at each other and assess one another. Well, I seem to be doing better than that guy over there. True believers in Jesus look left and right and they don't see themselves as any better because they know left and right is not the standard by which they'll be judged, but it is God who stands before us as judge. And in, fi- in the face of almighty God and his holiness and his awesome glory, the one who's truly repentant sees him or herself as small and worthy of hellfire. So you cannot embrace forgiveness in Christ unless you see what put the Son of God on the cross. Your own sin. You have to realize your own rebellion, your own idolatry, your own murderous thoughts and acts, your, your adulterous desires and deeds, your greed, your pride, your coveting, all of it, all of this stuff. All of that makes us guilty of a capital offense before Almighty God, deserving of eternal condemnation. And unless you have determined in your mind that you need a rescue from that, unless you feel desperate, that you need something divine, you cannot receive the gift of salvation. I know I'm hammering on this, but but the Bible makes much of, of sin. Because it is much. Unless we see the, the, the profound depravity of sin, we do not see the glory of the gift of salvation in Christ. The Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, that's Jacob, will inherit the kingdom of God. Unless you change your mind about your sin, unless you see it as truly vile before God, there is no hope for you. Jesus said in Luke 13, 15, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So the question for us this morning, have you repented of your sin before God? Have you repented Have you changed your mind about it? That sin is not something to hold on to and cherish, but sin is something to leave behind. And that's not just a one-time thing, brothers and sisters in Christ. If you've come to the Lord in repentance, that is good, but I would encourage you, that probably should be a daily expression, repenting of your sin before God, at least as much as you know it. It's a hallmark of being a child of God. First John tells us that if you say you have no sin, you, you deceive yourself, and the truth isn't in you. But then he gives the hope. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse from all unrighteousness. Repentance. Essential to persevering repentance. Secondly, trust. Now, why is it that you would trust anyone? I was thinking about this because I put the word as as the heading and I I see that Jacob's trusting God. But why would I trust anyone? Well, you trust someone based on their character, right? They've proven faithful in the past and you can put your trust in them. Um, I recently hired a uh, contractor to do some work in the house. And uh, before I pulled the trigger and sent the deposit, I said to Kath, I said, well, you know, she just gave me the name. I said, well, how do you know after I'm sending this money to this person I've never met that they'll actually show up on the date that they said they'd do the work? And she showed me all of the reviews and the, the shining uh, accolades for, for this person. I thought, okay. So I sent money. You trust based on past experience or the experience of others or promises made. Jacob showed his trust in the Lord. He had a change of mind and now he understands that he is unworthy because all that God has done for him and he remembers Esau. He remembers that Esau was bent on destroying him and he didn't get a good report from his servants about Esau's intentions and now he's coming with 400 men and what does does Jacob do? He prays, which is an expression of his trust. He knows the one who he needs to go to. Verses 11 and 12. Please, he prays, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. He's honest that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. And Again, he comes back to the the promise. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. See, Jacob gets it. If Esau destroys him and his entire family, there's, there's no multitude. There's no sand on the sea. But notice the content of his prayer. He asks for deliverance based on the fact that God promised him numerous offspring. His ask was based on what was already told him in a promise. And note as well that Jacob did not ask for what God did not promise. That's important to note. What happens next? Well, Jacob sets aside this present for Esau verses 13 to 15, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. If you're trying to do the math as we move along, that's at least 580 animals or more if milking camels have more than one calf. That's just, it's like an entire inheritance. It's it's a whole, it's a fully functioning what you need to set up a full farm. It's a massive gift for Esau. And what uh, what Jacob then does is separate these into herds, three or more groups, droves, and he sends them off to meet Esau. With each drove, they're to say, well, Jacob's following, Jacob's following, but these are for you. And and what Jacob hopes in this gift that, that Esau's heart will be softened towards him. Verse 20, he thought, I may appease him. With the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Now, here's a question to ponder Did Jacob's actions undermine his trust in the Lord or prove it? I had to spend some time with this because some people smarter than me, um, commentators, they're critical of, of Jacob, suggesting that he is not trusting God, but rather continuing in his scheming ways. But I just see it another way. Appeasing Esau's anger is not sin. And Esau's anger at Jacob was absolutely justified. He cheated him. Now, yes, the Lord said that he would, the older would serve the younger, but that did not excuse Jacob from the deception against his father, cheating his brother out of the blessing. The Lord would be the one to remove the blessing from Esau, not Jacob. So Esau's anger is justified. And the present that he's giving, it is sacrificial. Like I said, he's handing over a significant portion of his wealth to Esau. But I see it as well that this present could also be seen as making restitution. And, and listen, if you have wronged someone, and parents, we, we know this, one child takes something from a sibling, we don't, we don't just say say sorry and move on, right? Give it back. <laughs> restitution. I I see it possibly as Jacob making restitution for having cheated his brother. He also cheated his brother out of the the blessing of his father, which which the wealth would go with that. And so I, I take it that Jacob is using what God had blessed him with in order to make peace with Esau. And I look at it this way. Nothing that Jacob had was too much to spend on a righteous outcome. Nothing that he had was too much to spend on a righteous outcome. Now, is he trusting in the stuff or is he trusting God? I think he's trusting God, but using stuff and taking action in keeping with trusting God. So so here's the application for us as believers today. We must trust God for what we cannot do. And we must trust God for what he has called us to do. We trust God for what we cannot do. And we trust God for what he has called us to do. Here's what I mean. To have eternal life, to be saved, you must trust God. There isn't anything you can do in that regard. You can't save yourself. Only Christ's death can atone for your sin, right? You have to believe the good news that that has been done for you believe that jesus the son of god rose from the grave on the third day to give you life that's romans 1 16 17 now if you have trusted in christ you belong to the lord and the bible says you're called to reflect the character of god you're called to be holy so that's not a passive thing be holy Do things in keeping with holiness. That's going to show in terms of external action, is it not? So, trusting God to do what we're called to do. And and the Bible is clear. Read through the New Testament. Uh, Make every effort to live in obedience to God's word. If you were in the Bible class this morning, Sunday school, Phil taught, and he covered 1 Peter 3. Make every effort to add and they, they list some virtues that are kind of match up with Galatians 5:22 and 23, right? Fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, all of those things. Peter saying, make every effort. Live this way. You must actively and purposefully seek to do what is right and holy. You must actively and purposefully seek to avoid temptation so as not to sin. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Flee youthful passions. Pursue. Now you can't change your own heart, but you can attend to the word of God. You can listen to it preached and taught. You can read and study it. Because it is living and active, it will change change you see you do what you're called to do god does only what he can do and and you and i are not always motivated to love and good works but you can gather with god's people like this to be stirred up to love and good works hebrews 10 23 to 25 i already said that is futile to trust god for something that he has not promised that may be that may be a little bit harsh we ask god for lots of things things that his word clearly is silent about but if we hold god to a standard of trustworthiness if we've imposed upon him something that he has clearly not promised then our expectations are unreasonable. And perhaps you know someone, and maybe you've been in this place in your life, having given up on God because you've suffered loss or experienced a profound tragedy. And as tragic as those circumstances are, God, we lost our baby. How can I trust you? As tragic as that circumstance is, how more tragic it it is when somebody turns away from the Lord because they didn't get what they wanted. But what you are promised is not a stress-free, tragedy-free life, but what you are promised if you are in Christ today is that after you're in the grave, at some point in time, the Lord Jesus will return Reanimate you with a glorified body and you will live with him forever. Hold on to that promise. Jacob didn't have a stress free life, and God never promised one. So, trust God for what you cannot do and trust God for what he has called you to do. Believe and act according to those beliefs. That's what Jacob did, and that's how you persevere in the faith. Well, third, my third heading is weakness, weakness. I'm approaching 60. I don't like that number, but it's a reality. Um, It's a fact of life. Uh, We get older, we can't do some of the things we used to do. I can't run as fast as I used to. I find now that when playing hockey, my mind believes that my hands and feet can do things that they can no longer do. But I still put myself in that situation. It's just the reality And you know this, even for somebody who's young, you know, graduated high school, maybe you're on the football team. If you're not working at it, you can't throw that ball like you used to. You can't run down the field like you used to. That instrument you played in high school, if you're not practicing, you can't do it like you used to. Now, we get it. Our our, our capacities diminish over time, but some people experience sudden and profound loss of ability. Right? And those circumstances can be radically life-changing. The amputation of a limb, the sudden loss of sight, a debilitating pain that never leaves you. Well, we see in our story that Jacob acquired a limp. But it was in weakness that that he found that he was indeed blessed. The two are very much connected. Verses 22 to 32 is a very unusual section of the scripture. So Jacob, again, to recap, Jacob sent his entire family across what is called the Ford of Jabbok. That's just a stream that that flows northwest. So uh, Jacob's coming from the the east and from the north in a direction, and so he has to cross this, this stream. That stream, by the way, empties into the Jordan if you're interested. You're looking at your Bible map. Anyway, it's there. So he's almost at at Canaan. It's there that this man wrestles with Jacob until the breaking of day. A man wrestled is what the text says. So who, who is this man that wrestled with Jacob all night long? Now, we don't get his name, even though Jacob asked. But after the ordeal, Jacob named that place. And it's significant. Peniel, because I have seen, because uh, sorry, because I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So I take it here that this is this man is either an angel or a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. Uh, technical term would be a Christophany. Don't know exactly. I don't know that we have to solve the problem. But what is important is what happened in that encounter. Jacob wrestled all night. And the text tells us that that this man was finding that he could not prevail against Jacob. And, And I simply take it that's perhaps some anthropomorphic language to understand that this thing went on a long time. A divine power could easily have, you know, subdued Jacob whatever if that's Christ or an angel he allowed Jacob to wrestle all night long and that at the end of it all touched his hip and put it out of joint and at daybreak Jacob was hanging on he's hanging on and the man told Jacob to let go but Jacob refused demanding that he be blessed and here's where Jacob receives this new name israel and he's told why asks him what is your name he's jacob your name shall no longer be jacob but israel why verse 28 you have striven with god and men and have prevailed so what does that mean i think to this point in his life jacob had trusted in his own abilities we can see that he had taken advantage of others through his own cleverness and scheming and pushing and fighting Not only that, knowing that he was the one through whom God would establish a nation, he fought to seize by his own means that which God had promised. So I think Jacob's wrestling match with God was indicative of his entire life. He'd been wrestling all his life and the Lord humbled him right there you see what happens after the the affliction jacob wanted a blessing and i take it that the two very much go together jacob's blessing was tied to his affliction to his weakness and now his physical weakness would be a constant reminder a constant physical reminder of that which he had already confessed to the lord back in verse 10 i am not worthy Jacob, the grabber, became Israel, the one who perseveres. And for future generations, the nation of Israel needed to remember how they came to be and how they would persevere in weakness. They would persevere in weakness, not by thinking that they were strong or powerful or great, but acknowledging before God that they were weak and small. Indeed, the way that they were called out after they became a nation and had been sojourning in in Egypt some 400 plus years. Moses brings them out into the wilderness and, and there the Lord tells them, it is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you are the fewest of all peoples. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. Don't look at yourself and say, God chose us because we're great. No. God chose us because he set his love on us. But in fact, if we look at ourselves, we're kind of small and insignificant. Weak. And the lesson for us, brothers and sisters in Christ is that we do not endure. We don't persevere apart from knowing that we are weak before God. We will not persevere by posturing before God. This, the, the Apostle Paul writing about the, the constant rebelling of the Israelites in the wilderness wandering. Paul, he, he, he warned the Corinthian believers. He said this, 1 Corinthians ten twelve. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You think you're better than the Israelites? Take heed that he stand lest he fall. And think of the Apostle Paul's own life this, this intellectual giant, raised, uh, sorry, taught at the feet of Gamaliel. He received a, a, the Harvard education of his day, if you could call it that, in the law an intellectual giant. And the Lord gave him this extraordinary supernatural experience. As he describes, he he was caught up to the third heaven, a a kind of a paradise. And there he tells us in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, that he he heard things which cannot be told, things which man may not utter. And he, by his own testimony, Paul says that 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 experience was so glorious, but with it there was a risk. Paul thinks even a certainty as he explains to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. See, God blessed the apostle Paul in a way that he didn't want. In fact, the text tells us in 2 Corinthians that he prayed three times. Not just yes, but he pleaded with God three times, thinking that this, this thorn in the flesh would be so debilitating that it would Im- impede his ministry. And here's the blessing. Here's the good thing that the Apostle Paul received. Here's what the Lord told him 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and 10. My grace is sufficient for you it's everything you need for my power is made perfect in weakness therefore i will boast all the more gladly paul says of my weaknesses so that the power of christ may rest upon me for the sake of christ then i am content with weaknesses insults hardship persecutions and calamities when i'm weak then i'm strong when i'm weak then i am strong, when I am weak, then I am strong. That's so opposite of the thing that we think about, isn't it? When I feel strong, I'm strong. When I put forward a a, a confident bravado, then I'm strong. When I get the right training, then I'm strong. When I work out, then I'm strong. When I get a class A education, then I'm strong. No. And this isn't against training and, and education. But the point here is to do what God wants us to do. It is not accomplished in our own strength. It is accomplished ultimately in recognizing our weakness. So maybe, maybe you are extraordinarily gifted today. Maybe the Lord has given you an abundance of resources and abilities. You know what this is like. You know the temptation. I'm not accusing anyone, but you know the temptation as you walk through a crowd of people. You know perhaps that you've got some abilities and you see that person who has far less than you. Don't, don't think that you are better. Don't become puffed up or conceited. And just because we have an extraordinary spiritual moment or some sort of mountaintop experience, what did the Israelites have? They watched the Red Sea divide. They walked over in dry land. They looked back and they see the Egyptians drowning. And then there's, they're on the other side. This, this pillar of cloud and fire travels around with them. Then they get to Mount Sinai. They hear the voice of God thundering from the fiery mountain on the top. And they're terrified. And then they rebel again and again and again and again. We're no different. We're weak, and we need to recognize it. Take heed, lest you fall. But the good news is, when we recognize our weakness before the Lord, just like the Apostle Paul did, that weakness, that understanding of our profound inability is the place where God can indeed work through us and cause us to persevere. That weakness is the blessing because it ultimately reveals the power of Christ through you. Well, to become someone who is fit for the kingdom of God and perseveres, God is going to bring you to the place of repentance for your own sin. And if you have not repented of your sin, if you're not turned away from that sin, uh, apart from that, there's no way to embrace the promise of forgiveness in Christ. The other side of that coin is trust. So when we turn away from sin and rebellion, we've got to turn to something. And that's where we turn to Christ. Trust his promise. Trust God for what you cannot do and trust God for what he has called you to do. In both cases, trust. And every day that you come before the Lord, recognize your weakness and ask God that the power of Christ might be revealed through you. Brothers and sisters, that's how we persevere. May God cause us to persevere in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful that you are patient with us and our fumbling and our bumbling and are falling. Lord, we recognize that all that we have is, is not because we're worthy. The salvation that we have in your son is not because we're deserving. It is all of your goodness and grace. So God, teach us. Teach us to see ourselves rightly as you see us ever dependent upon the sacrifice of your Son in our place, ever dependent on your power every single day to walk in the newness of life that you've given to us, and recognizing, Father, that we don't have what it takes, that it's only by your power that we endure. So we pray, by your grace, keep us, cause us to persevere, that Christ himself may be glorified, and we pray it in his name. Amen.